0: Good morning, everybody. A very good Tuesday morning to you. Let's get into the headlines here on Sportbox. Chinese factories are back to work, according to the official manufacturing PMI, defying expectations of a contraction and helping to keep mainland stocks in the green. Oil prices rally off 18-year lows as the US and Russia agree to talks to bring calm to crude markets and address Saudi Arabia's increase in production.
1: Tech leads a rally stateside. Alphabet, Apple, and Microsoft help the major averages close sharply higher as the software giant reports a major pickup in its cloud services. Credit Suisse says it may cut bonuses this year, but decides to maintain its dividends as the Swiss banking giant defies moves by European lenders to halt payouts until October.
2: And here in the heart of London's insurance industry, find out why Lloyds of London says the sector could be in jeopardy surrounding the pandemic coronavirus. We also speak to Jason Windsor, the CFO of Aviva 930 CET.
0: So let's start off with this chinese data the factory activity in the mainland has restarted and rebounded in march after production was disrupted by the virus outbreak the official manufacturing pmi has risen to 52 points a sharp jump from february when it came in at a record low of 35.7 that figure is also significantly higher than expected. And analysts had uh, forecast contraction. Well, Emily has more on the number and can tell us how the markets are reacting to it. Good morning, Emily.
3: Hi, good morning, Jeff, and look at that V-shaped recovery, if you could even call it that, but certainly a rebound in the PMI number for the month of March coming out from China, coming off an all-time record low for the month of February, which was a reading of 35.7. The market was looking for recovery here, but not necessarily expansion, but that is exactly what we got at 52, a very very big jump higher. The market was looking something more along the lines of 45. We also got a non-manufacturing number, which was 52.3. 3, recovering, uh, rebounding from the 29.6 in the previous month, uh, giving us a composite when you put the two numbers together at 53. Uh, This is how it translated into the markets with Hong Kong up four-tenths of 1% or about 100 points. The Shanghai Composite rallying about a dozen points and the Shenzhen Composite at 16.70, a gain of eight-tenths of 1%. Uh, Whether or not uh, you are convinced by this latest data set, well, we'll get another one tomorrow coming out from Chai Shin. That is a reading from the private sector, uh, so we'll see whether or not that uh, stages a similar rebound we're looking at uh, the February number at 40.3 and the forecast of 45 point8 uh, business resumptions were hampered by a concern about a second wave of uh, coronavirus if you may remember in February it was an extended lockdown uh, on many parts of China after the lunar new year period which extended into March uh, so we're looking at uh, how this is playing out and uh, manufacturers we got one in focus today that is han high precision The world's largest contract manufacturer of electronics, a big client of that of Apple, where it gets 50% of its revenues. Coming out with a report card for the year 2019, profits down 10%, $3.8 billion, marking three years of declines, coming in at a six-year low. Uh, The company says it has resolved its labor shortage, and it is back to seasonal capacity in terms of production. uh, And it has uh, diversified out of China, focusing now into Vietnam as well as India high is traded flat, as you can see, at $70 per share back to you guys.
0: Terrific. Emily, thank you very much indeed. Well, let's pick up the conversation. KU Jin joins us, Associate Professor of Economics uh, for the LSE. Uh, Steve's going to jump in uh, on the conversation. He's out in the city this morning. Um, KU, obviously the number uh, looks encouraging on the face of it, this PMI data, but obviously there is a certain amount of caution around this. A resumption in activity doesn't really tell us much about the underlying activity in the plant, whether it's expansion or contraction, but it is resumption nevertheless. Can you put a bit more flesh on the bones for us? What are you hearing out of China at the moment about the pace at which we are seeing workers going back into their jobs?
4: Well, I'm currently in Beijing at the moment, and there has been very few uh, new cases so far. So business is almost back to usual uh, already in Beijing. We have to understand that the Chinese economy is different from the U.S. economy in the sense that services and the share of GDP is relatively much lower And a lot of it is production. And the government has been really keeping an emphasis on keeping the supply chains, logistic chains, production chains fully operational. So what we've been hearing is two-thirds, at least two-thirds of the business all around the eastern provinces are just back to normal.
0: I do wanna ask you about the the data because there is a a lot of skepticism, I would say, in a country the size of China with a population the size of China that officially the registration of new infections is so low. Is that credible?
4: Well, first of all, I don't think any country in the world is taking up the measures that we have been taking the last few months, even uh, today. It's a strict monitoring of pretty much every single individual they can catch uh, is monitored. Uh, I have uh, returned from London and I have eight people watching over me just in my apartment alone. And social behavior has fundamentally changed even after going back to work. And uh, so this kind of uh, strictness, I mean, using technological surveillance, all kinds of of, uh, punishment schemes has not been seen anywhere else in the world. However, as um, controlled as it is now, we contain the virus, we still cannot say for sure that there will not be a second wave when uh, businesses are fully operational. And that's data that will be very important, not only for China, but for the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, Professor, good morning to you. It's the rest of the world I want to talk about as well. The hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese exports we see globally are, are in absolute jeopardy. We know that there's been a pivot to look more at the domestic economy in the last couple of years as well. But those exports are absolutely key for the Chinese economy. Until coronavirus is overcome on the other side of the Pacific and in Europe and elsewhere, uh, the Chinese economy is going to remain in the doldrums, isn't it?
4: No, I think that I would say that the domestic demand is actually where uh, the Chinese government is currently focusing. You can see that they are uh, their uh, measures to rescue the economy is really targeting small and medium sized businesses and that services mostly the domestic demand. However, that said, they want to keep sure that they want to make sure that trade is um, is maintained and especially supply chains uh, with a view of, of critically supplying these parts to different parts of the world. As Chinese economy starts to recover while the rest of the world starts to sink it's lucky in some sense for the rest of the world that there's a staggered a kind of uh, recovery and and economic downturn but they have put in also promotion for trade policies exactly to serve that purpose but I would say that the majority of the focus is still on uh, relying on domestic demand uh, to help with the Chinese economic recovery
1: Professor, I want to touch on the political side here, because there's a lot of talk now about what this could mean for China in terms of the opportunity to take a bigger role on the world stage as nations around the world now have to look inward and focus on their own domestic situations. What do you think President Xi Jinping wants to get out of this opportunity that China now is looking at?
4: Well, I actually think that this is the opportunity of the century for China to build trust in the world, which it has found so difficult to come by as a rising nation and to rebuild its international image. And China doesn't waste an opportunity like this. We've seen that in the financial crisis of the like great recession in 2009. Uh, we've seen it uh, uh, when the Chinese government has been supporting the European debt markets. We've seen uh, to solidify and make these ties even stronger and more mature. And even though there's been a lot of tension between the U.S. and China uh, recently, I believe the Chinese government's stance and direction is still to come out as a per, you know a country that will uh, help uh, the U.S. rather than be a bystander. Will guarantee uh, critical medical supplies and equipment and help help you know really really whoever needs, it, especially the developing countries. This is their chance. They're looking at the long run game. Uh, So I think that some of this bickering will uh, start to uh, seize uh, in the the next phase.
0: Uh, Professor, we seem to have a deterioration in the quality of your line, so we'll we'll make this the last one. Um, Can I just ask you, there is a lot of talk about backlash, and we've seen President Trump continue to try to describe the virus as a Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. How is that playing out, that story where you are in Beijing, And how does China attempt to overcome that and convince the rest of the world that it will take the serious action necessary to close down some of these livestock markets that have been the origin of these kind of infections over recent years?
4: Well, I have to say that this was... um these kind of tensions have not been well received uh, according to the people in China there has been a uh, rising uh, anti uh, us sentiment just as there has been rising anti chinese anti asian sentiment in the us but uh, that said i think the dip, you know kind of the diplomatic stance the official stance is also shifting uh, just as, as i mentioned they want to promote more coordination cooperation want to put aside these differences you know we're not going to be able to talk about a trade deal, given that half the economy is frozen now. So that will guide some of the popular sentiment and also try to convince the Chinese people that this is the chance for China uh, to kind of do more uh, things for the world, not just out of a strategic interest, uh, but also out of a human- humanitarian uh, kind of uh, imperative. And uh, so that will shift uh, some of the, you know, the kind of the thinking going forward.
0: Professor, good to catch up with you as always. Thank you for giving us your time this morning. Uh, Kei Jin, Associate Professor of Economics at the LSE, currently holed up in Beijing, as we can see. Uh, factory output in Japan, let's give you this data, slowing in February as the virus outbreak hit supply chains and disrupted demand in the country. Industrial production came in at 0.4% for the month. That was better than expectations, but output is still expected to decelerate in March. Separately, Job availability also fell to a near three-year low, but retail sales rose due to strong demand for food and drink by households forced to stay at home during the crisis.
1: Well, let's get a look at how markets are trading around the globe, kicking off with the overnight session in Asia. We've got some firmness coming through for mainland Chinese markets. The Shanghai composite up about four tenths of a percent. The Shenzhen up about eight tenths. And over in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng is up about 0.6%. We have that stronger than expected manufacturing data out of China. We were just discussing providing a bit of a boost to sentiment. The Nikkei 225 trading a little bit on the back foot, but overall the moves contained down just about 0.7%. PERCENT. Shifting over to opening calls here in Europe, we uh, are looking at, a again, a fairly muted start to trade in line with the moves we've seen in the Asian session. A little bit of green on the board for the DAX, the CAC 40, and the FTSE MIB, but overall, uh, fairly muted open. And this comes after we saw some more gains for the stock 600 yesterday. That main benchmark ended about 1.3% higher, led by very strong gains in the German index. U.S. markets. Yesterday, we saw Wall Street extend the rally. responding to the weekend's news that President Trump would extend the national social distancing measures, giving some uh, some confidence to markets that they are serious about containing the spread of the virus. Uh, And you can see here the Dow Jones ending about 690 points higher, the S&P 500 up more than 3 percent, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq up 3.6 percent. You heard there earlier those tech giants uh, were benefiting or are benefiting from the surge in cloud computing as people stay home from work and use uh, tons of that cloud computing power. So a very strong day for Wall Street. Let's take a look at U.S. futures to see if that positive momentum will continue today. It looks as though we're going to see a little bit of a pullback if these levels hold. And that is key here because as we've seen over the last uh, day, over the last week or so, those futures can be very volatile. So at the moment, we're looking at a weaker start to trade for all three major indices. But of course, all of that could change over the course of the morning. Now, as a reminder, it is the final trading day of March, but for the Dow, it's been a month to forget, with the index down 12%. So let me take you through some of the uh, moves that we've seen in the Dow. You can see here, uh, you can see here, to my, uh, to, to just beside me, you've got the Dow down 12% in March, uh, drops of two, three drops of 2,000 points or more. So massively a volatile month for the Dow, uh, and again, that is uh, on, that is on pace for the worst month since 2008 and the third negative month in a row for the first time since October 2016. So we have seen a rally come together in the last week or so but it has been a very difficult month for the index. Now let me take you to the moves we've seen over the last quarter. The Dow is down uh, on down about to 22% at the moment to 22,327 for the quarter. And to put that move into context, on pace for the worst quarter since 1987, it will also break a four-quarter win streak. So massive rally as we close out the month of March, but a very difficult last month and difficult quarter for the Dow. Jeff?
0: Thanks very much, Juliana. Uh, Oil prices are off 18-year lows on news. U.S. President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin held a call to talk about talks, effectively, about how to calm crude markets Following recent declines, the president has previously branded the output dispute between Moscow and Saudi Arabia as, quote, crazy, after Riyadh sparked a steep sell off in crude prices by flooding the market. Trump and Putin agreed oil ministers and energy experts from each country should hold ongoing talks to try to stabilise the market. And here's the thing, because of the decline in the price of oil, a barrel of oil is now cheaper than a good pint of beer in Canada. Apparently, Western Canada Select, the barrel quote in Canada, is now $4.18 per barrel, as opposed to, apparently, a good pint of beer, which will cost you about $5 in Canada. Go to CNBC.com for more on that story. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of people never thought they would see, Steve. But um, interesting that we now get this breakthrough on talks, but it happens to be the US and Russia who are making apparent progress rather than the Saudis and the Russians.
2: Absolute rubbish. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. I just chuck that one in there. Uh, look, I, I, okay, maybe, maybe Trump suddenly had the knock on the door and say, by the way, you know this US energy independence thing? It's in tatters, mate, if we don't get a higher price of oil. What? Really? But I thought we were energy, no, 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 we're not energy independent at $19 for WTI. And, and this is the most incredible thing that it's taken the industry's absolute panic in the US for Trump to realize what's going on as well. He thought he was just looking at gasoline prices for uh, US consumers and going, well, this has got to be good for my re-election. Here's my other problem, why I was so scathing there with my opening salvo. The US does not have an official state-led NOC. Ta-da! you all know that, every one of our viewers knows there is no US national oil company. Exxon, Chevron, all the massive oil companies and the shale companies, and the BPs and the Shells and everyone who's using uh, all those shale products and what have you and developing them, they are not run by the federal government. So Trump can say what he likes to Putin, but whether the oil majors uh, are actually going to work in concert with Russia, in concert with Saudi, in concert with OPEC, can you imagine that? Can you imagine President Trump working with OPEC? Have a look at his Twitter sphere. I'm sure they're all still there. The lambasting. I remember once I was in. Uh, in Saudi Arabia for an OPEC meeting. And the meeting had just like wrapped up almost. Uh, And then Trump sent this tweet lambasting OPEC. They went into lockdown, into frenzy. You couldn't get hold of a minister for love nor money. Khalid al-Fali, Mohammed Barkindo, Alexander Novak. They all just went scurrying off to their rooms because they didn't know how to reply to Trump. And now Trump wants to talk to them? Well, that's interesting because, as I say, who's he representing here? Is he representing the United States of America or is he representing Exxon or is he kind of... Okay. Or, or Chevron. It's just absolutely ridiculous. The other thing I want to say about the oil price at the moment is look, I want to remind our viewers that there are three curves. Everyone's looking at one curve, and they rightly should be looking at the demand curve as well, because the demand has dropped off a cliff, and that is unambiguous. I mean, you've only got to look around the magnificent city of London, uh, which I'll talk more about a little bit later on as well, um, to see that no one's driving, no one's using aviation. Was it EasyJet in the last 24 hours? Grounded their entire fleet, the biggest low-cost carrier in Europe? I mean, it's just quite incredible, the demand destruction we're seeing. But everybody in the industry knows, from Pierre Andron down to um, I don't know, Ben Van Burden, uh, Patrick Puyon, all know that there are three curves one is the demand two is the supply and three are the costs And whilst everybody is absolutely right to be looking at the demand side, I'm not denying that, that is unambiguous, and that is why these prices are down. Costs are are still at a certain level, and so they've got to be sived aggressively. Uh, And also supply is being sived aggressively, and hence that gets us back to the Trump conversation. So yes, we need to concentrate on demand, but nobody should be under any illusion that supply is also being absolutely uh, shuttered aggressively uh, across the board as well. The other thing, people talking about there's nowhere to store all this stuff, yes, there is. Yes, there is. It's called the ground. It's called don't get it out of the ground. You don't have to develop this stuff and refine it and get it on ships and what have you if you don't want to. There is plenty of storage in the world. It's called the planet. Back to you
1: but Steve, that's, thank you for fleshing it out. I mean, my I think on the demand side of things, it's interesting to see President Trump, who's been such an advocate of lower oil prices uh, over the course of his tenure as president, because it means cheaper gas for consumers. And now that's not when a benefit suits, to him, given when it, suits. when it suits exactly. And now that's not going to be a benefit for him, as certainly as we head into the election season with America staying at home. So that incentive is no. just out the window now.
2: One more point. Yeah, one more point. Sorry, you got me on it. You know I can't stop. Um, (laughs) the, The US was in crisis before coronavirus in terms of its energy industry. It is a fact. And I and I challenge anybody in the industry to tell me otherwise as well, because I've been looking at the amount of infrastructure spending on U.S. shale going forward in 2021, 2022, 2023. And guess what? The new projects weren't starting at 45 to $55 a barrel. So way before this precipitous decline, people were banking on the U.S. I say people, uh, OPEC and their allies were banking on, on the fact that the U.S. was seeing a scything in new supply coming on board to take over from the supply for 2020. There is unambiguous US of getting to what, 12, 13, possibly even 14 million barrels a day. It was going to be very, very big for now. But there was a, a hope from those who were the rivals to the US that actually it was peaking. And, and ask anyone who's supplying infrastructure. Ask uh, Lorenzo Simonelli from Baker Hughes. Ask any of these people. Uh, and the fact is, the new spending wasn't necessarily taking place. And of course, then we had the trade war. Remember the trade war? Things like Brexit trade war we used to talk about a lot. No? OK. So the trade war was shutting out US suppliers' across the other side of the Pacific as well. And that's what everyone was terrified about in the US. There was no point spending all this money on extra infrastructure if the US wasn't going to be able to supply goods to the other side of the Pacific as well. So there were a whole load of factors in place before this pandemic, the disaster society we're seeing now as well, even before that came in as well. No one should underestimate how much supply destruction there is in the States. And then that can take us back to the markets, which is also the corporate credit problem for some of the smaller players. It it is catastrophic, trust me.
0: Uh, Just a quick one from me before we wrap up on the topic here. I I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss the prospects of uh, some cooperation here between these two presidents. And I'll just throw my tuppence tuppence in. I think coronavirus has changed the optics and it's changed the nature of this relationship. I mean, the US has now seen over 3,000 deaths the Russians over 1,200 cases of infection. And both of these presidents went into this crisis denying that it was going to be a serious problem. And both have had to pedal backwards very quickly. So uncomfortable bedfellows, but the one way I guess that they can replenish those state coffers that are going to be depleted by all these bailout programs to support businesses is ultimately to try and get the energy price back up again to put some more money back in the uh, piggy bank if you like for further business assistance so you. there is a, a I, pr- hear I think there's a there's a you can see through that optic that all of the producers of oil have a vested interest in getting this price back up
2: I, that is, Jeff. You, you speak great sense as usual. Or I'm just shooting off into the dark. You tell you, I, and I agree with you that they've all got it in their interests as well. But it can only be verbal intervention until I see the day where Igor Sechin and Darren Woods sit down at a table and say, "All right, we'll both cut production and we'll work together uh, on, on, on basically cutting production rather than building production together." Because, of course, we know the U.S. companies uh, and the Russian companies do want to work together. And, until Igor Sechin says, well, I'll, "I'll be part of an agreement with the U.S. about our production levels," when I see that day then I'll eat my hat. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com.
3: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cupmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.